great truth that is, and what a friend we have in Jesus. If you could open up to the book of uh, James, please, uh, the letter of James, chapter 2. We are well into our way, uh, well on our way in the book of James, and uh, I think this is the fourth message now from this great letter, uh, just a, a hodgepodge of practicality, and uh, looking forward to what uh, James has for us this morning. And so James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is what James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and became judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to come to you uh, this morning with, uh, with open hearts, God, that you would expose uh, where we are deficient in you. And Lord, like a careful surgeon, though it's painful, would you open us up, would you repair us, and would you uh, help us to uh, be mended, to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, there are many concerns that were being uh, led up to the, the Olympics in this past winter. Uh, if you remember, the, the Olympics took place in Pyeongchang in, in, in South Korea. And at that time, it was at sort of the height of tensions between uh, the United States uh, combined with South Korea uh, against the North Korean government for their threats of nuclear disaster and shooting off missiles and all that. And uh, added to that, as there always is in these big events, is the threat of terrorism. And so there was plenty of concern that went into uh, these Olympics. But among these big safety concerns, there was also another concern that was quietly brewing that didn't hit the headlines quite as much as the others. It wasn't a concern about safety. It was a concern about discrimination. 
You see, in 2004 in the Sochi Olympics, uh, when Russian figure skater Adelina Sotnikova finished her routine, she came off the ice and was embraced, and, and, and she ran into the arms of someone that happened to be a judge of that very competition. And that judge just happened to be the spouse of the person who was in charge of the Russian Federation for figure skating. Obviously, the perception of this uh, sent shockwaves through the figure skating world and, and seemed like an obvious bias. But that shouldn't come to, as a surprise for anyone who knows just a little bit about figure skating uh, because one could make the argument that discrimination or bias or some sort of favoritism is actually embedded into the scoring system of figure skating because figure skating judges are allowed to judge and score competitors from their own country. The subjective nature of the sport along with that scoring, has created this environment where there is obvious conflicts of interest. And NBC News found out that approximately one-fifth of 164 judges eligible for the upcoming figure skating events are either current or former leaders in national skating competitions, which gives them a natural incentive to be a bit more biased towards skaters that are from their country. And although we can, we can look at that and we can sort of wag our heads at, at the injustice that, that comes with such a, uh, a scandal in the sporting event, a quick look that our hearts would find that we are no different than the judges of an Olympic skating competition. Every single one of us comes with preconceived ideas, biases, discriminations, or prejudices, or favoritism that look with favor upon certain populations and disdain at others. And in our text today, James lays bare the condition that we all suffer from. But understand James's heart here. He does this not to ruin us, but to break us down and build us up to be people who reflect the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who created all humans in his own image, and who... Uh, God desires that we would display every person's worth and dignity in how we treat them and how we love them. As we unpack this passage, we're going to see that Christians must live in integrity. And not by favoritism, not by prejudice or mistreatment, but rather living through the law of love. Let's see how James unpacks this. The first thing that we need to do is that we need to come to grips with our biases. Come to grips with your biases. James begins by addressing his audience just as he did in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, where he says, My brothers... Now, many translations will, will put in my brothers and sisters, that's perfectly appropriate. The word that James uses there uh, signifies brothers and sisters that are living in a home uh, together. Uh, and it is very important that James writes this because as the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself, 
James could inadvertently place a hierarchy in their minds. And he springboards now from verse 1, and uh, it's perfectly appropriate that he means this because he is talking about people that are in the Lord Jesus Christ as spiritual brothers and sisters. So immediately, James sets forth in verse 1 the idea of how we ought to relate to one another on equal planes. James is the same as us. I am the same as you in the eyes of God. This is not foreign to the New Testament. If you can recall, Paul in 1 Corinthians, tells the, he, he condemns these people that think they're super apostles. And says that there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female. And we can take that out of context. But Paul is saying here that we are all on equal footing as far as our worth and our dignity goes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter does the same exact thing in 1 Peter when he's addressing the elders. He calls himself a fellow elder. He's leveling the playing field with all the other elders so as not to make them think that he is greater than them. And so verse 1, he says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James uses a really interesting word here for partiality. You could uh, use uh, this word to translate it as bias. You could use it to uh, translate it as saying, don't discriminate, um, adding to, you know, sort of along those lines. But very literally, the translation is this, don't receive according to the face. Well, that's an interesting term that James uses here. And the idea that, that lies behind it uh, is that uh, we are not to receive or we're not to reject based on some sort of characteristic. And James says that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom James calls the Lord of glory here, uh, that any kind of prejudice, any kind of bias in how we treat people uh, should not even be named or considered among us. And he gives an example of one way in which the church does this. Look with me in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So he, he gives this hypothetical situation that's happening here. Uh, but it's grounded in reality that the, the church that he's writing to faces here. Uh, two people come into church. One looks fairly wealthy. The other one does not. The other one looks very poor. Now, in verse 3, this is what James writes. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. So uh, notice here that, that these both are greeted by ushers. Now, uh, this is just a side note, but for those of you that serve as ushers in this, in, in, in here at Emmanuel, I want to encourage you. You're doing a biblical role here. God has called people to be ushers in the service. Obviously, he provides an example of not what to do, but even still, he's giving a good apologetic here uh, to have a service in the Lord, and this is an important one. 
And the usher here in this example receives the one who is rich and brings them to a better seat. And though it's sinful, it is not hard to understand the rationale behind that sort of mindset. Rich people in our minds seem more important. Rich people are known in the community. And who in our culture today does not want to be known? Think about the social media right now. The goal of social media is to put yourself out there, get a name for yourself, let everybody know how great your life is, even if it's just sort of superficial. And if we can network with someone that is rich, all the better. Now, speaking from the perspective of, of church management, there are major temptations to want affluent community members in the church. I was going through the process of becoming a, a pastor at a church a number of years ago, and I remember the interview process, and I asked them to tell me what the makeup of the church was. And after going through some of the demographics, I remember them saying, oh, by the way, the chief of police goes to our church. It's a very small church. Oh, and by the way, we have a University of Lincoln uh, professor that goes here to the church. And as I thought about that, that this week, going through this passage more deeply, I thought, huh, I don't remember them ever mentioning the guy that works for the city. I don't remember them ever mentioning the guy who worked as a mechanic or any uh, of the farmers or anyone who worked in the plastic uh, factory or the amount of special needs people that we had in the church. And in my youthful ignorance, I fell right into that trap early in my ministry. Then when someone would come to our church who would be a day laborer, it'd be great. Hey, all right, we got another person in church. Let's love them. Let's bring them in. But when the CEO of the county hospital came to our church, boy, was that a big deal. The CEO of the hospital is here. <laughs> and when I came to passages like this, however, this week, I was so ashamed of myself. Why should I care whether someone is homeless or whether someone is a CEO comes to this church? It doesn't matter. God loves us all on the same plane, and he wants us all to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's such a temptation, and that is exactly why here at Emmanuel, myself, Pastor Dave, uh, Janine, we have no idea who here gives. We have no idea who gives what. Why? Because if I knew that one person gives a little bit more than someone else, it is an easy temptation to give that person a little bit more attention. To give them a little bit more of what they want in this church. And so then the church becomes biased. So we do not know those things. In verse 4, James gets to the heart of this bias. Look in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, we may not think of such distinctions as a big deal, 
But this is the words of Christ. And he says that thinking that way is evil. Why is it evil? Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. When we engage in prejudice, make distinctions, discrimination, putting some people on higher planes than others because of some uh, different characteristic, we are disregarding the fact that God has made us all in his image, both in worth and dignity. And as Christians, we represent God. In fact, Scripture tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. And when it comes down to it, our discrimination tells the world that God discriminates. That he doesn't care for the poor. That he doesn't even care for the widows. That he doesn't care for the orphans. That he doesn't care for the marginalized. That he only cares for those who happen to look like us, be in the same socioeconomic status, and who like the same things that we do. And when we take this into consideration in our day, honestly, it's hard to know where to even start. And it's hard to know even where to stop with the application. We live in a day when systemic racism still exists. For instance, there was a study that was done a few years ago uh, in which black men would send two resumes to the same company. One, uh, it was exactly the same uh, school, same uh, credentials. It's just that one of the resumes would use what we consider a uh, typical uh, black name. One would use a... uh, a typical what we would think of as white name. And the research found across the board that when they used what we typically would think of as a white name, it received a response rate at 50% greater than that of a traditional black name. Add that to racial profiling. Add that to the existence of the alt-right and countless other examples. We in the church need to be on the forefront of racial rec- uh, of reconciliation. It's maybe taboo, and I'm not going to get into policy here, but what is our treatment of illegal immigrants like? Again, I'm not getting into policy here, but I think that we more or less treat them like vermin to be eliminated rather than image bearers of the living God. When you see a Middle Eastern man wearing a turban, what is your immediate reaction? A terrorist? An enemy of the state? Let's get a little more practical. How do you view people who are considered beautiful in our cultural standards compared to those who don't measure up? Although we believe that beauty only runs skin deep, the research shows us that it actually pays to be good-looking. In 2010, uh, Newsweek did a survey which concluded that in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotion, promotions, looks matter, and they matter hard. Here's what they found. 57% of the 
of hiring managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have a harder time getting a job. 68% of hiring managers believe that once hired, looks will affect the way managers rate an employee's job performance. 61% of hiring managers, 60% of them being men, said that women would benefit from wearing clothes that show off their figure. Although 75% of Americans are overweight, about 66% of managers said that they thought some managers would hesitate before hiring someone who is significantly overweight. 84% of managers said that their bosses would hesitate before hiring a qualified candidate who looked much older than his or her co-workers. 64% of hiring managers said that they believe companies should be allowed to hire people based on looks. We could go on and on. But the point is, is that we, mu- that we all make distinctions. We must recognize that we have biases in the way in which we discriminate, even if it's just in our minds, Brothers and sisters, this ought not be the case. Come to grips with this. And not only that, but also our second point tells us that we need to accept the seriousness of, uh, accept the seriousness of our discrimination. You know, the, in the United States of America, we lo- have a long history of these sorts of issues. You can think back to slavery and you can think back to the Jim Crow laws. You can think of uh, uh, women's suffrage. You can think of the treatment of Japanese Americans in, in World War II. And almost all of the anti-discrimination laws that we have in our country are the result of something that, that happened. Equal opportunity employment, uh, college admission uh, procedures, Title IX in public schools. And those laws... Uh, are, are, are good in their intent, and I believe that it, it's okay to have some things that uh, regard this, but the problem is, is that these laws force the constituents to do something that should be intrinsic already in their heart. What was supposed to be natural in the heart has been poisoned by sin, and continues to wreak havoc in our hearts, in our homes, in our communities, in our institutions. But because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, God's people, by faith, we have been given new hearts, a heart that is bound by a different kind of law. Verse 8 tells us that it is a royal law. It is a law that comes not in the Constitution, but it comes in a kingdom a kingdom of led by Christ. What is that royal law? Let's look in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And it's here that James, I think, really gets to it. If you, and it's a big if, if you're writing your Bibles, I would underline that word. If you are really fulfilling the royal law, you're doing well. 
And though this is a conditional statement, I think he's actually assuming something here about us. And that assumption is that nobody here fulfills the royal law. Not one of us. How many of us can say that we have fairly treated every single person that we have encountered? How many people here can say that they have never thrown out a racist, sexist, crude, derogatory joke? How many of us here have never gotten nervous when they sit next to somebody from a different ethnicity? Even more subtly, how many people have you avoided or not engaged at church because they are different from you? On the flip side, how many of us have given special favor to people because of some uh, the perceived class, some perceived characteristics? If that's you, you're doing pretty good. You might not even need a Savior. But if you're like everyone else, you can find yourself in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is really showing his psychological brilliance here. Because, as you remember from last week, uh, I had said that all of us make very good self-defense attorneys. We make up excuses, we, we poo-poo off allegations, or embellish the truth in order uh, to avoid any sort of guilt or any sort of responsibility. And it is certainly true when it comes to issues of being biased. Our, bias, our biases aren't murder. They're not lying. They're not adultery. And so we sort of put them on a lower mental framework than we would for these other what we would call big sins. But in James uh, 2, verse 9, he reminds us that that is, discrimination is a sin. And it's not as if there are various levels of sin. It's not like the Catholic Church looking at mortal versus venial sins. That is not what he's talking about here. But we want to think about it that way. Some of us have lost sleep over something that we've said, something that we've done, uh, something that we would consider the, the, the major sins that have kept us up at night. But how many of us have ever lost sleep because we treated somebody differently? How many of us have even lost sleep because of a joke that we've told? That's why James levels the playing field here in verses 10 and 11. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, 
you have become a transgressor of the law. So understand what James is saying here. He is saying that the nature of the sin is irrelevant. Yes, in our understanding, there are some sins that have bigger impacts on life here. Obviously, murder is a bit different than than lying and the ramifications depending on the lie. But here, in God's eyes, it doesn't matter whether it is a murder, whether it's adultery or a little white lie. You can live an absolutely perfect life, and maybe you've only told one little itty-bitty white lie. And James is saying that that one lie is great enough to send you to hell. Why? Because God is holy, perfectly spotless. He is untouched by sin, and he expects us to be as well. And any sin is cosmic treason in an effort to usurp God's authority and take that authority into our own hands. So what is the solution to this? The solution is that we desperately need to fulfill the royal law that James is talking about here. And the problem is that we can't. We cannot not sin. It seems as if we are doomed. But what if I told you that there was one who never wavered? There was one who kept every law perfect. He never murdered. He never lied. He never uh, coveted, never discriminated, never stole. And that what his perfection was can be attributed to you. That his perfection can be given to you on your behalf. That would be very, very good news for you and for me. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. His perfect life, his moral credit, is given to you. And more than that, his death paid the penalty for our sins on our behalf. And the Bible tells us that by God's grace, through faith, we are saved and given a new life. Christ's perfection is attributed to us. Christ gets all of the ramification for our jokes, our biases, whatever it is. And now through faith, Christ frees us up to look in the rearview mirror and see the seriousness of our discrimination and yet see the finished work of Christ. And he empowers us to now look through the windshield by loving others as we love ourselves. Will you be perfect? Absolutely not. But are we forgiven? Oh yeah. We're forgiven. By God's grace through faith, the spirit of the living God will help us be the kind of people that he is calling us to be. You know, the United States Congress, they can pass whatever legislation they want. But as Christians, we are bound under a different law. The royal law of God. We have to come to grips with it. We have to see the seriousness of it. 
and we cling to Christ for mercy, and we live in light of that mercy. And that's our, our final point this morning, is that we need to live and love in view of the future. Live and love in view of the future. Now, without incriminating yourself, how many of you prepare well for going to the dentist? And by preparing well, I mean brushing two to three times a day and flossing every single day. If I would think that if you're a, a normal person, or maybe you're just like me, uh, you notice on the calendar, oh, man, I got a dentist appointment next week. So what do we do? We start flossing two or three times a day to make up for those months that we haven't flossed, right? In hopes that when we go to the dentist that the hygienist can ask us the question, have you been flossing? And we can honestly say, yes, I have in the last week. But the thing is that hygienists can tell if you haven't prepared well. They can tell. It doesn't take uh, many, of, many of their scrapes or one strike of the floss to tell. It certainly doesn't take them very long when they take out that little hook with the measurement and they measure all your gums and compare them to the last time that you were at the dentist. You know, we're preparing for things all the time, aren't we? For sports. We practice in light of what is to come in a game. Uh, in, in, uh, for musicians, it's to get ready for the big performance. And how well you have prepared will oftentimes uh, be the one thing that determines the outcome of what's to come. Think about for you students. You don't study. You have a major test. If you haven't prepared well, you're not going to do well. And one thing that we are all preparing for, there's one preparation that is absolutely more serious than a sports game or a dentist office or a test. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. We are all on a race to prepare for eternity. And what we believe and how we live our lives today makes an eternal difference. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Okay, so uh, James has just gotten done giving this whole treatise on the law. Saying that in the law that he's talking about, eight, verses 8 through 11, he's talking about the law of Moses and if it's under, understood correctly, it ought to leave us in a sense of despair. That if we break even just one of these laws, we're finished. But yet, many of us are trying to live out this law woefully short. We try to bank on the idea of saying, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I think that if God sees me and he looks on the totality of my life, I think he would say that I'm, I'm really just a good person and that he should let me in. But James has told us that even if we just put one simple bias down, we're guilty of the entire law. And for those who have not truly put their hope in Christ, this law will be measured 
in how they are judged. Heaven and hell are in the balance here. But those of us who are in Christ live according to a different law. We're no longer judged by uh, a law that we can't keep because Jesus has kept that law perfectly on our behalf. Rather, those who are in Christ live under this law of liberty, he calls it. And how we live our lives is an indication of how much we treasure Jesus. If Jesus is our treasure, then we won't show bias. If Jesus is our treasure, James tells us, we will speak life to others. Especially those who we tend to look down on. If Jesus is our treasure, we will not only speak life, but we will give life in how we treat people. All on a level playing field. We will love them in a gospel way. Why? Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, we need to reiterate the point again because we can't be told this enough. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Christ's blood shed on the cross on our behalf. His death is our death. His life is given to us. Our sin is given to him. And it is by God's grace through faith by which that happens. But as we'll see more next week, we're not saved without works. And if we're speaking life and giving life to others, then we're showing mercy. We're overlooking their sins. We're looking past our prejudices, past our biases. And we're looking uh, past our own issues that we often extrapolate onto other people. And the mercy that we give to other people is reflective of the mercy that God has given to us. On the flip side of that, our racism, our stubbornness, our favoritism, our bias is an indication of a judgmental heart, one that is not bent on mercy. Therefore, the judgment that we will receive, if that's us, will not include mercy. We can only pretend that we've been spiritually flossing for so long before the dentist knows. God knows your heart. He knows our very thoughts. He knows whom he's saved and those that he hasn't yet. We can only fake it for so long. And if you're in Christ, we prepare for eternity now by showing mercy, speaking life, and giving life. You know, though it shouldn't be, we can reasonably expect some sort of bias with the way that the the system of judging for the figure skating is laid out. Easily makes room for favoritism. But in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ... No bias should be named among us. We see others as God sees us. As image bearers who are deserving of worth, dignity, and honor. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
we show that worth, dignity, and honor of every person by speaking life and giving life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, not uh, an easy message to give. Lord, we don't like being exposed to deficiencies. But Lord, without knowing our deficiencies, we cannot know the glory of what you've done for us. Lord, I want to pray that you would overcome years of bias and prejudice in some people here. Lord, I want to pray that you, through your word, through your testimony, would set someone's heart ablaze as they reflect on their life, how they've treated people, how they've talked about people, jokes they've made, and that they would flee to the cross of Christ and that they would display the gospel and how they interact with other people. Father, I pray that as we're going to be getting into it here soon, that you would use our tongues for good and not for evil, that we would be people who speak life to others, that we would build each other up and not tear each other down like Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5. God, give us the grace and mercy that we need to be the people that you have called us to be, Lord. Maybe we're here this morning and, and this whole gospel thing, this whole church thing has never really made sense and we're presented with issues that are relevant to us and, and Lord, we see the beauty of Christ redeeming us from our past and leading us into a future of hope. And God, I pray that, that if there's someone today that hasn't received you, hasn't said, Lord, I, this actually seems like truth, that today they would receive you that the Holy Spirit would enter them, that they would be made new, and that Christ would get great glory for their, from their lives. Father, help us all. We're at the, feet of the, the, the foot of the cross, pleading for mercy, which you have promised to us through your great word. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Let's stand together as the worship team comes forward.